0: I'm really excited today um, about the topic I'm about to share, uh, because there's something about um, this topic that I think is each one of us could resonate with in some fashion or another. And this topic that I'm going to talk about is, I guess for all intents and purposes, knowing the will of God. So obviously it's um, something that we can all relate to because we all want to live in God's perfect will, don't we? You know, it's just obvious we want to run hard for this time we have on earth and just do what we can uh, with what God's entrusted us so that when we stand before him one day, we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Um, So, what I want to do is start off because, you know, a lot of people, this is like something that's really on people's hearts where it's like, oh, I don't know if I'm in God's will or not. First, I want to start off with this amazing prayer um, that Paul the Apostle prays. And I think that, if nothing else, uh, if you're seeking God's will for your life, and we're going to talk in detail throughout this message, Um, But if you're interested in, like, hey, I don't know God's will and I want to, this is a really powerful prayer. So I want to pray this first, and then I'm going to kind of break it down a little bit uh, and explain it a bit. But this is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And this is Paul's prayer for the Colossians church. So Paul says, uh, and I'm going to pray this over all of us. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, We've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that his spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of God, and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have all great endurance and patience. And we just give joyful thanks to you, Father, who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and the kingdom of light. We thank you that you rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So, as I mentioned, this is obviously a powerful prayer. And, and I've, I, I love the, what are called the apostolic prayers. Have you guys heard that term before? Simply the prayers that are in the Bible, you know, that Paul and others have prayed. And I love these prayers because it gives us a glimpse into how Paul prayed. But also, you know, God obviously liked these prayers enough to include them in the Bible forever. You know, God's like, I like that prayer so much, I'm going to canonize it and and it's going to have eternal fruit. And I think that, you know, uh, I like advertising them, so to speak, because why not just pray them for ourselves and for our loved ones, right? And so this one, what I want to do is just point out a few things before I move on uh, to to give us sort of a, a framework of what how important this topic is of God's will. So you'll notice that at the beginning of the prayer... Paul says, for this reason, since the day we heard of you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually, notice continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. This isn't a one-time prayer that Paul, okay, God, fill the Colossian church with the knowledge of your will. Paul says, I'm continually praying this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because that's how important it is that you be filled with the knowledge of God. And then he goes on. Uh, through the or, sorry, so we continue continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives you. Now I, I want to uh, mention something here because many translations translate that word spiritual spiritual wisdom and understanding. How many of your translations say spiritual? okay so what I want to mention about that um, is that Greek word for spiritual. Is actually, it's, that's not a very good translation of that word. And, and I'm not saying that because I know this, but, uh, I've read commentators who do know a lot about Greek saying that's a terrible word. Because in our language, in English, we don't really have a word that really captures what Paul's saying there. And so typically they will, whenever you see the word spiritual in most translations, it's lowercase s spiritual. Right? Um, and specifically, it's Gordon Fee who I'm referring to. He's a world-renowned New Testament scholar. He says that that word is actually an adjective, and whenever you see that word, it's, you should it's an adjective that's anything that belongs to or pertains to the capital S Holy Spirit. Anything that pertains or belongs to Holy Spirit. And so what I love is the new NIV actually changed all that. So you know there was a 1984 version and a 2011 version. And I like the 2011 version because all the times it used to translate spiritual, they're more a- accurately capturing it and saying capital S Spirit. So let me give you an example. If it was a, um, if we're talking about an individual, you're spiritual. In some ways it'd be more accurate to say you're a spirit person, capital S Spirit Person. Because we don't have a word that captures it. Because in our right, in English, the word spiritual can mean anything. How many of you have heard the term, I'm spiritual but not religious? But if you press them to, and I've done this before, what do you mean by spiritual? I don't know. It can mean anything. It, you know, my, it has so many connotations with it. And so it's almost, it's almost a distraction in some ways to interpret it as spiritual, because what's spiritual wisdom and understanding? I remember when I first started reading this prayer and scriptures like it, I was kind of like, what is this? What is this spiritual wisdom understanding? It seems kind of like this abstract concept. So, what he's saying is this, uh, Gordon Fee. He's saying this word is actually almost only exclusively used by Paul. And the 26 times it's re- it's used in the New Testament, 24 of the times Paul uses it. So it's almost exclusively a Pauline word. And I think 13 of the times it's in the book of 1 Corinthians. Typically, when he's saying this, though, like if I was to say plural, you are all spiritual, it'd be probably more accurate to say you are all spirit people, capital S. You are all people who belong to the Holy Spirit. Now I'm saying all this for a reason because in this prayer, like I said, many translations translate that spiritual wisdom and understanding. But this, what I'm reading from and prayed from is the new NIV. And it says, notice, fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Holy Spirit, capital S, Spirit. And I'm emphasizing this for a reason, and I'll get to that later. But I just wanted to say that, because if you have a translation and it, whenever you see the word spiritual, often, you know, if you look at the new NAV, typically you would find, you know, a way you could translate it. But just remember, anything that belongs to capital S, Holy Spirit. So, now, I want to say this. Again, we're talking about this prayer. So, first of all, Paul says, I continually pray that God fills you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that, for these reasons, and I'm going to point out, he actually gives five things, at least five things. This is what happens if you're filled with the knowledge of His will and you actually live that out. Okay? So he goes on and says, so that you may first live a life worthy of the Lord. Number two, please Him in every way. Number three, Bear fruit in every good work. Number four, grow in the knowledge of God. And number five, being strengthened with all power according to his might so that you may have great endurance and patience. So being filled, knowing God's will is unto something. And this is the fruit of it. If you actually live according to his will. And this is why Paul said, I continually pray for you. So that you would live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bear fruit in every good work, grow with the knowledge of God, be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, which we all need in this life, don't we? So then I also believe, he goes on to say, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. I believe that joyful thanks comes from living in His will too. So that could be number six, arguably. The point is... I'm advertising this, so to speak, this verse, because if you're not sure what God's will is, whether it's his general will or his specific will for your life, this is a good prayer to pray continually over yourself or over your loved ones. Maybe you're, you know, you're making, or your child or spouse or whatever making a major life decision. Why not pray this all the time? <laughs> God, fill me with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that your spirit gives. Why not? Because Paul prayed it all the time for the Colossians. So there must be a reason for that, Right? Now it's interesting. Fast forward a few chapters. That was Chapter One in Colossians. Um, in Chapter Four, Colossians Chapter Four, verses twelve and thirteen, there's another person praying for the Colossians, and he says in verse twelve, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He always, he is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God mature and fully assured. So this other guy, right, Epiphras, or however you pronounce his name properly, is continually praying for them, always wrestling in prayer, so that they would be in the will of God, right? Stand firm in the will of God. And then what's the fruit of it? So that you'd be mature and fully assured. So these apostles and believers in the early church knew something important that it is critical to pray that we know God's will and that we'd stand firm firm in it for the rest of our lives. For all of these reasons I just talked about. Twice in the same book, he talks about how when they're praying, they're praying, God, fill them with the knowledge of your will. And I believe that's an emphasis of how important it is that we know God's will and that we actually live according to God's perfect will. Now... How do we know what God's will is? That's the million-dollar question, right? I mean, that's such a huge, huge topic, God's will, right? Because there's, I mean, He's sovereign. There's God's purposes for mankind. There's God's specific will for your life. So when we're talking about God's will, that can mean a bunch of things. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about um, how we can know and discern God's will. First of all, knowing God's will through his principles as outlined in Scripture is one way we can know God's will. Because thank God for the Bible, right? The Bible really is a guide in our lives for so many ways. And, and the New Covenant is not a law. And I'll talk maybe more about that later. So it's not like God gave us another law when He sent Jesus. But thank God He gave us principles that we can live by, or if nothing else, that will give us guidelines to know how to walk in the Spirit. Because, you know, there's things that are talked about in the New Covenant where it's like, don't cheat on your spouse. So obviously, if you're like, hey, the Holy Spirit told me to cheat on my spouse, you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. It's another spirit you're listening to. And people say that. So, you know, the Bible is really good for those reasons. And it helps us to discern God's overall will. So let me give you an example. I love, I'm sure we all do, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Matthew 6, 9 to 10. Um, This, then, is how you should pray. This is Jesus telling us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. What's God's will on earth as it is in heaven? What does that mean? If it's not in heaven, then we can be guaranteed he doesn't want it on earth. So, for example, is sickness God's will? All you have to ask, is there sickness in heaven? No. According to this verse, then, it's his will to heal you. Right? There's a lot of other verses we could talk about. That's a whole nother. But you get what I'm saying, right? Is there poverty in heaven? God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, we know, we can be confident from this prayer that Jesus says, this is how you should pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we should be seeing heaven on earth. That's why he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So it's really critical that we seek his kingdom, and and I mean, some of it is just logical. Like, we know from the Bible, there's no disease or sickness in heaven, so we can be guaranteed, hey, this isn't God's will, let's pray, it's his will be done in this person's life, and they're going to be completely healed, because it's God's will that, you know, heaven comes to earth. So that's a principle. You see what I'm saying? That's a principle that we can be like, okay... As it is in heaven, so it be on earth, so we can pray according to that. Um, with that being said, so like I said, there's principles, scriptures, but we're, we're not in a law where the New Covenant is all about relationship. In fact, it's all about relationship with the Holy Spirit through Christ. It's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So God didn't send His Son to give us another law. And part of the Difficulty of living out a principle rather than presence is that we can get off track. Now, let, I'm gonna, if some of you have like heresy, let me explain what I'm saying. So, I'm not saying the Bible's wrong. What I am saying is it's more complicated than that because there are tensions in scriptures, in the scriptures, that, that aren't clear what we're supposed to do specifically in this season. Are what our individual, So for example, am I supposed to take this job or that job? I don't see a scripture on that, right? And so so the Bible's good for giving us principles of how to walk in the Spirit and that sort of thing. But when it comes to our specific lives, it's critical we develop that relationship with the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm going to get to that more later. Um, but remember, uh, what I'm getting at is... Living out a presence rather than principle. Though living out of principle is fine, but there's problems that come with it. And one of them is biblical paradox. What, for all, that's what I'll call it. And let me give you an example, okay? So if you want, if you have your Bibles, if not, you can just listen to me. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them two by two ahead of him, to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Verse 4, Do not take a purse or a bag and sandal or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. So Jesus specifically said to the 72, I don't want you to take money, I don't want you to take a bag, I don't want of, of clothes or anything, I just want you to go. Now we could take that and be like, okay, if I go into the harvest field according to this scripture, it, then I should, I should go by faith, not have money, not right? Just isolating this specific scripture, say, okay, according to the Bible, this is what Jesus says. But now let's fast forward, I'll guess, a couple years, Luke 22, same book, book of the Bible, Luke 22, verses 34 to 38. This is at the Last Supper now, okay? So Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. Now look what Jesus says. This is interesting. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you with oh, purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Again, he's alluding, alluding now to the scripture I just read in chapter 10. Nothing, they answered. Then he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also if you have a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, He has numbered me with the transgressors, and I tell you that it must be fulfilled in me. Yes, that it, what is written uh, me reaching its fulfillment. the disciples said, See Lord, we here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. So now Jesus is telling them the exact opposite. Remember before, and you know, a few couple of years ago I told you not to take a purse, not not now I'm telling you, go get a purse. Bring a purse, you know, be prepared. And interestingly enough, by a sword. And they're like, We have two. And Jesus is like, Yeah, that's that's enough. So, so wait a minute, Jesus. You're actually telling us now in this season, it's the total opposite of what you told us a couple years ago, and Jesus is probably say, Yeah, this is a different season, and this is how you're gonna be prepared for this specific season, right? Totally different paradox, totally different principle now. Now now look at this. This is probably I'm guessing two hours later. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. He's praying, right, with his disciples. This is Luke twenty-two forty-seven 47 to 53, same chapter. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw that what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords, the ones he told them to buy? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Look at what Matthew's version says. Matthew 26, 15. So you can just listen if you don't. It's just one verse I want to read. Put, put, Jesus said this, put your sword back in its place. And we all know this verse. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. An hour or two after Jesus said, buy a sword... They, they used the sword, he told them to buy, and he's like, what are you doing? If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Wait a minute, Jesus, which is it? Do we buy swords, or do we not buy swords? Now, the problem with this kind of verse is that people develop whole schools of thought, isolating specific scriptures like this. You live by the sword, you die by the sword, therefore God does not endorse war. And he doesn't, don't get me wrong, he doesn't. But, is it accurate to say that Jesus told us that we need swords in certain seasons? It's, I, like, I know, it might be hard, to, but it's in the Bible. Jesus said, buy swords. So, is it, is it, you know, people, Jesus was a pacifist, based on certain scriptures, but was he a pacifist? If you take the whole of scripture, what, is God a pacifist? Did you know that he calls himself the Lord of Hosts, the Lord of the Armies? I think, and I forget, don't quote me on this, but it's something like 50 times more than any other name he calls himself. He's a martial God. So it it doesn't change. God is God, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. My point is, I'm not trying to advocate war. (laughs) What I'm trying to show you is that there's particular paradoxes in the Scripture. Which one do we go with? Do we buy swords, or do we not buy swords? Do we bring money on our, on our missions trip or do we not? Do we go by faith? Totally depends on the situation, totally based on relationship. What's the Holy Spirit telling you? That's really what it comes down to. Now, what I want to say though, in Luke, notice what the disciples did wrong. It's back to Luke 22. So, verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw that he was, what was going to happen. So, you got to understand, these are Jesus' disciples. And they saw a crowd coming with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. Okay, so this, right, huge threat. Oh, this must be why Jesus told us to buy swords. Think about it. Wouldn't we think that if we're in that situation? Maybe this is why Jesus said we need swords. So then they ask him, Jesus, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Notice they didn't wait long enough for Jesus to answer them. They just went ahead and cut off the guy's ear, and Jesus' is like, no, no, no. No, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. The season, if you will, isn't yet, or this situation doesn't call for the sword. You shouldn't be using it, because this is God's will that I go to the cross. Right? Presumption. We gotta watch out for presumption. Because, wait a minute though, Jesus, you told me to buy a sword. Why, what do you mean I can't use it? Did I tell you to use it in this specific situation, though? They asked him but didn't wait for an answer. If they would have waited for the answer, they wouldn't have used the sword, right? So we have to posture ourselves. We're like, okay, even if it... Let me put, say this. There's this quote that I love. Almost every heresy in church history can be rooted in this. You ready for it? Almost every heresy... Taking to the logical conclusion that which God only chose to reveal in part. Taking to its logical conclusion that which God only chose to reveal in part. Every heresy can be rooted in that. This is a good example. Buy swords. Partial revelation. Didn't say why. Logical conclusion. All these people with swords and clums are here. Let's use the sword the Lord told us to buy. Presumption. And that's dangerous. And that's why, over and over again, I'll probably get to that later, the Lord tells us to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to navigate through this. Because it's not black and white. That's the point, like I said, of the New Covenant, is that we live by relationship, not by law. So we can't take isolated scriptures and say, Jesus is a pacifist, he's against war. No. And let me... let me, So... I'm not, again, not advocating war, but I'm trying to make a point. So, so, okay, wait a minute. Are you saying, then, that it's okay if we have weapons to defend ourselves? Let me show you another scripture. Uh, let's go to Romans 13. Romans 13, verses 1 to 5. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established, God's will. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do not will bring judgment on themselves. Those who do not will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the swords for no reason. They are God's servants. Agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Did you notice God said He established these authorities, these people with swords, right? Does it says that, right? Or you guys, did you were reading the same Bible yet, right? He says that, and He also says these are God's servants, doesn't He? God instituted this. God actually instituted them to be agents of wrath for wrongdoers, people who aren't spirit people, if you will. Why am I saying this? If you're a civil authority. You're disobeying God by not using your weapon. I'd be so bold as to say that's what this is. saying. if you're a police officer and you have a weapon and you don't use it, I think according to this you're actually disobeying God. That's my opinion. I mean, you can pray about it. If you're in the army, you, you better use your weapon or you're disobeying God because this is your God's servant, according to the scripture. Now, they use the word swords. Nowadays we use whatever, guns and so forth. But you see the principle... Now, we're not, most of us are probably not civil authorities. Our warfare is not carnal, right? But they're spiritual, they're mighty mighty for the pulling down of strongholds, taking thoughts captive. So ours is the body of Christ. We're, We're not like the Old Testament where they'd go and defeat an evil army. We do it through prayer, fasting, all that stuff, right? Okay, so don't get me wrong, but... Does that mean, then, that it's not God's will for certain people to carry weapons and to use them? Jesus said, get swords for this season. Romans 13 makes it pretty clear, civil authorities are God's servants, right? What I'm saying is there's paradoxes. Remember, that's how I started. Biblical paradoxes. So which is it, Lord? Do I get a sword or do I not? Do I pray? Do I use swords in this season or do I go by faith? It depends. What is the Holy Spirit telling you is the answer. And I, and I know that might sound complicated, but it's really not. It's all about relationship. Because yeah. you can find paradoxes all over the Bible. And that's why certain people are like, there's so many contradictions. No, there aren't contradictions. God will tell you to do something. He won't tell someone else to do something. So, for example, I I heard the analogy, if you're a runner, some people run to, you know, For Olympics, I'll say, their diet is going to be way more strict than someone who just jogs casually, right? Versus someone who doesn't jog. Their diets aren't going to be as strict. So if the Holy Spirit tells you, I want you to eat this but not that, and you're a runner, He might not tell the person who's not, you know, a professional runner or whatever. Do you get the analogy? So it depends. He might tell one person, I don't want you to watch movies or TV the other person, he might get them to watch movies to speak to them through them prophetically. I'm telling you, it's not as simple as... We, we always want... kid okay, God, black and white, what's the law? It was so much easier when we just knew what you wanted. And God's like, no, I want you to develop a relationship with me so you know what I'm telling you to do in this specific situation. Holding truth and tension. I'm talking about biblical paradoxes now. What the unfortunate thing is what happens is, and I like this analogy, in the path of life, there's two ditches on either side. For every mile, and I remember I used to hear a pastor say this all the time. For every mile of, of uh, 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 path, or road, thank you, there's two miles of ditch. I was like, what are you talking about? It took me so long to figure out what he's even talking about. What do you say? On the path of life, there's truth, the middle, the radical middle, there's truth. Most truth, I'm not going to say all truth, most truth taken to an extreme becomes untruth. So God, God's so loving that he doesn't send people to hell anymore. Untruth. God's so loving or God's so just that it's up to you to get to heaven. Untruth. You see, on either side, so God is both loving and just. Remember, Romans 11:22, Consider the kindness and the sternness of the Lord. He's kind and He's stern. He's a lion and a lamb. So you, you can't say God's just a lamb because he's not. Likewise, you can't say God's just a lion because he's not. He's both. You see what I'm saying? And that's the case with a lot of, of these truths, is that you've got to stay on the path of life, which is the truth. He's a person, by the way, Jesus. Because if you take a truth, what happens is you rationalize these other scriptures that don't conform to your understanding away. God doesn't judge anymore. I hear that a lot these days. Jesus took our sins, that's true, but He's a just God and He judges still. I can show you some. In fact, Peter, 1 Peter, God's judgment begins with the household of God. You just have to look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3. New covenant post resurrection, because some people say, Oh, well he died on the cross, there's no more judgment. There it's Revelation twenty two, I think, when he, he judges Jezebel with on a bed of sickness because she won't repent. two twenty two, I think. I could be wrong, but I think that's the scripture. Regardless, you see what I'm saying? Jesus is still a judge, but he's still loving. He loves us all unconditionally. So it's hard for our human minds to grasp these things. That's what I'm saying. Holding these truths, these seeming contradictions, paradoxes, intention to stay on the path of life or else you could get off on either side. You could become legalistic if you think God's just judge and he doesn't love. On the other side, you could become, they call it unsanctified mercy. You know what I'm saying, right? And there's certain streams that I think are in danger of going too much on that side. Of like, no, God, I, I, everyone's saved, it doesn't matter what you you, what religion you are. That's universalism and that's wrong. That is not Biblical. So you see what I'm saying, right? I'm probably staying on this point too much, but I want to make sure I'm clear what I'm not saying and what I am saying. And to stay on the path of life, it's the Holy Spirit. In fact, you look at the book of Galatians, the whole book of Galatians is about this radical middle. The first four chapters, he's talking about how the law is no longer applicable because they're trying to put the law on people. They're trying to get people circumcised. Then the last two chapters, he spends saying, okay... That's true, but if you live in lawlessness, you're not inheriting the kingdom of heaven either. And, and in fact, I'm going to read this right now, because this scripture is so critical for, for our uh, new covenant living. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. I'm, just let me get there, and I want to make sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So I say live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the, the, gratify the desires of the flesh, the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit was contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with one another so that you do not do what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That is the key being led by the Spirit, frees you from the bondage of the law of the old covenant. Okay? The law of sin and death, and that's made clear in Romans 8. But what I want to... And then he, he contrasts. Well, Okay, look. Um, if you look... And I won't read them all, but in verse 19, he says, The acts of the flesh are sinful nature obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, etc., etc. He lists like 22 things, I think. Then in verse 20... Oh yeah, verse um, 21... I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's huge. Wait a minute, Paul. I thought you said we're no longer under the law. The radical middle. (laughs) We're not under the law, but if you go too far on this side of lawlessness, you're not inheriting the kingdom either. The path of life is what you got to stay on. And the only way you're going to stay on it, according to these verses, is walking by the Spirit. Right? That's what it's saying. So he goes on to make clarify. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That, I mean, this portion of Scripture, this in Romans... This is, I'll do, may, maybe develop that more at some other time, but critical for our, our life in, for our life in Christ is walking by the Spirit, and that's how we know. This is, in this specific situation, what God's telling me to do. Okay. Another problem, now again, biblical paradox was the first. Another issue... Problem of living out a principle rather than presence, rather than the Holy Spirit, is that the Bible isn't always clear what we should do. I said this earlier, for example, what university should I go to? What job should I take? You're not going to find a scripture on that. I want you to move to whatever, right? Seattle, and do this. No way. Now, I want to, how many of you have heard of Kenneth Hagin? A few? Yeah? How many of you have heard of this book? I believe in Visions. Okay. I recommend it. It's, it's really neat. I don't know if you know this, and those of you who haven't heard of Kenneth Hagan, um, he has some really solid teachings. Um, anyway, in fact, Kenneth Copeland was at, his spiritual son was at Toronto on Friday. We got to see him for the first time. That was cool. Anyway, this whole book's full of his encounters with Jesus Christ. He had many encounters with Jesus Christ himself, personally. And, and other encounters. So this whole book, and what's really cool is, out of every one of his encounters, came really neat revelation. And there's there's a few of them that just stick with me. It's like, my goodness, that's intense. So I want to read a couple short stories, short uh, uh, encounters from this book because it's super relevant to what I'm talking about. Okay, um, and you'll see why when I read them. So in this first encounter he had, he was 33 uh, years old, around my age. And he was doing a tent meeting, and uh, Jesus Christ appeared to him. He had no—he had no grid for it, by the way. He was like, I had—I would—I wasn't expecting this more than I would be expecting me to be the first person on the moon. Like he's like, I wasn't praying for it. I wasn't fasting. Nothing. Jesus just appeared in a tent meeting. Okay. Um. So I'll just read it because I don't want to—I don't want to do it inaccurately. So anyway. Okay, Jesus told me that even as he had appeared to my mother before I was born... Oh, by the way, so he's in the throne room of God, Kenneth Hagin is, in this encounter right now, talking to Jesus face to face. He said he was like 18, 24 feet from the throne. So he said, Jesus told me that even as he appeared to my mother before I was born, and had told her, fear not, the child will be born... I would minister in the power of the Spirit and would fulfill the ministry you called me to. Now it's interesting, he had no idea his mom had this encounter. She didn't tell anyone except her own mom and he went and asked her and that actually happened. She, she couldn't believe he knew this because Jesus said, I appeared to your mother and told you this, or told her this, that, that you'd be born. Anyway, that's another story. Then he talked to me about the last church I pastored, saying that at the time, now this is 1950 when this encounter happened. February 1949, I entered into my first phase of ministry. And he said, some ministers I've called to the ministry live and die without getting into even the first phase of ministry I have for them. Jesus added that this is one of the reasons why many ministers die prematurely. They are living only in his permissive will. Now, Actually, Kenneth, I'll I'll just keep reading, because Kenneth, I was going to say something, but Kenneth, he said for 15 years, so Kenneth has been preaching the gospel, if you do the math, I guess it would be like 17 years, for 15 years, I'd only been in his permissive will. I'd been a pastor for 12 years, and I'd been in evangelistic work for three. During those years, God permitted me to do it, but it wasn't his perfect will for my life. And he said I hadn't been waiting on him He'd been waiting on me to obey him. So get this. Kenneth pastors a church. And I, I, before I read this, I heard him preach on this before. This is quite a few years ago, so I don't remember the details. But I remember him telling this, and I was just struck by this. He's like, I pastored this church for 12 years, and according to Jesus, I wasn't even doing his will. Because Jesus, I never told you to do that. But you just went ahead and did it. So anyway... Then he talked about the time I entered into the first phase of ministry in 1949. He said, I'd been unfaithful and hadn't done what he had told me to do. I hadn't told the people what he had told me to tell them. I answered, Lord, I wasn't unfaithful. I did obey you. I left my church and I went out to the evangelistic field. So remember, he passed for 12 years, then he went for three years in the evangelistic field. Yes, he said, you left the church and went into the evangelistic work, but you didn't do what I told you to do. The reason you didn't is because you doubted it was my spirit who had spoken to you. You see, faith obeys my word, whether it's the written word of God or my spirit who has spoken unto man. I fell down before him saying, yes, Lord, I failed and I'm sorry. I repented with many tears because I had missed his will and I doubted his dealings with me. Stand up on your feet, he said. As I stood before him, again, he told me that I had entered into the second phase of my ministry in January 1950. At that time, he had spoken to me by prophecy and by the still small voice in my heart. In the next eight months, during the second phase of ministry, I believed and I'd been faithful and I'd obeyed. Now I was to enter into the third phase. He said, if I would be faithful to do what he told me, if I would believe and obey him, he would appear to me again. At that time, I'd enter into my fourth and final phase of ministry. So he was a pastor, 15 years of ministry, not in God's will. And remember what Jesus said. He said, some ministers live and die. Not even entering into the first phase of ministry. I remember when he was talking. Uh, when I heard that message, I was like, "This is intense." That we could do this, we could live outside of God's will and think we're doing what He told us to do, and Him being like, "I never told you to do that." Sorry, it's it's anyway. Now I'm gonna read a second encounter. Okay. I hope this is okay. But because I, this is important, and I'm, I, I hope it, you know, it, it helps you. It, like, it, you know, spoke to me when I first heard it. So, this is nine years later now. The sixth time the Lord appeared to me, so in the book, he talks about all the other times, uh, was in February 1959, while I was holding a revival meeting in El Paso, Texas. I slipped and fell on my right elbow, hurting my arm rather severely. At first, I thought it was broken, and because this was about 9.30 at night, I went to the hospital to have a doctor look at it and set the bones if necessary. About a block from the hospital, the Lord spoke to me uh, and had knocked my elbow out of place. The Lord also said "If he was, or it was the devil's work, but he would make it turn out for his glory and for my good. He also told me he would talk to me about it later. I should not fear or worry about anything. At the hospital, the doctor x-rayed my arm and confirmed what I already knew to be true. He explained my elbow was knocked out of place, and some chips were broken off the bone. what Jesus told him this he explained was even worse than a broken arm because the ligaments and muscles had to hold or that hold the elbow in place would have to be put back in place. He said they would have to give me an anesthetic to do this otherwise i'd not be able to stand the pain Then he said i'd have to be in the hospital for several days after that I'd have to wear a cast in my arm for at least four weeks and then I would have to carry. The arm in a sling for a while. Now, I'll fast forward. This is the next day. He's alone in his, his room, and Jesus appears. So, get this. He's in his hospital bed. Then I heard footsteps coming down the corridor during, uh, toward my room. I looked toward the door to see who it was, because it's only six thirty, too early for visitors. Someone dressed in white came through the door, and at first I supposed it was a nurse. As I looked closer, I saw it was Jesus. It seemed as if his hair, or my hair on my head, stood on end. Cold, chill bumps uh, popped out all over my body, and I couldn't say a word. Jesus approached my bed and sat down on a chair. He was robed in white and wore some sort of sandals. And then he said, when I saw him before, his feet had been bare. The Lord began his conversation with me by saying, I told you in the automobile the other night, as you approached the hospital, that your arm would not be broken, and you since learned this to be true. I also told you I would talk to you about this later. So when i oh, then he talked about it. He basically heard the voice audibly. So I'll fast forward a bit. In my hospital room, the Lord reminded me of what he had told me in the car on the way to the hospital. I told you that your arm was not broken, but you had knocked your elbow to place and had a slight fracture, which was confirmed to the doctor. He said, I also told you this is the devil's work, but that um, it would all work out for my glory and you're good. I replied, yes, Lord. I haven't worried about it for a minute because I know that what you told me. In fact, I've been having a glorious time in the Lord. Okay, this is where I'm going with this. You are to be commended for taking me in my word, Jesus continued. Now I want to say this to you. This has happened to you, not because it was my perfect will for you, because it was not my will at all. This has happened to you because you got out of my perfect will and into my permissive will. He reminded me of the scripture, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that of good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Those three different things. I once read a translation of this verse which read that you may prove what is that what is good and permissive and perfect will of God. The Lord explained that he permits people to do things that aren't expressively his will. For example, he said, it wasn't my will that Israel have a king, and I told them so. But they wanted to be like other nations. They kept clamoring for a king, so God permitted them to have a king. Some time ago, when you... Now, this is his exhortation to Kenneth Hagin. Some time ago, when you preached to a convention of ministers, you stated that your ministry was that of a teacher and a prophet. You got into trouble because you reversed the order of your ministry, putting your teaching ministry first and your prophetic ministry second. When you did that, you got out of my perfect will and into my permissive will, thus opening the door for the devil to attack you. You might ask why... If I knew you were going to fall and hurt your arm, I didn't prevent it. This is Jesus talking still. I could have, of course, but I didn't want to. And instead of being angry with me for not preventing it, you should be glad I allowed it to happen. If I hadn't permitted Satan to do this, to arrest your attention, you would not have lived past the age of 55, because you would have gone or continued in my permissive will instead of my perfect will. Now, Kenneth, this is 1959. Kenneth Hagin lived till 2003. So I don't know what, if you want to do the math. He lived in old age. If he had it, if this hadn't happened, Jesus is saying, "You would have continued in my permissive will, you would have died at 55. So I'm glad that Jesus like, you should be glad I let this happen to arrest your attention. This is the third time this is Jesus talking still. I've uh, had to speak to you about this. For this reason, I'm going to let you wear your arm in a cast and then in a sling for a little while. I'll speed up the healing process, however, and you will not be disabled as long as the doctors has said it would ne- be necessary. Then Jesus told me the exact day I would get out of the cast, and it happened. He went on to say, you've enjoyed divine health. Now, this is cool. Kenneth Pagan actually lived in divine health. He never got sick. So Jesus says, you've lived, enjoyed divine health after he got healed when he was a teenager for 25 years. Even now, you're not sick. But, he said, you've been out of my perfect will for two years, and you've been walking only in my permissive will. So And then Kenneth and Brackett says, More than 50 years have now passed since I was healed as a teenager. The Lord has kept me from sicknesses, given me divine health all these years. Hurting my arm was the only accident I've had in all that time. Don't we all want that? 50 years, complete healing, health. Although I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit for the ministry of a prophet and a teacher, this is Kenneth talking about, I've been putting my teaching ministry first because teaching is my natural preference. So this is his preference, right? It is also... Uh, I also had seen a great need for Bible teaching, and of course pastors had encouraged my teaching ability. But the Lord told me in this vision that I was going to have to reverse it and put my prophet's ministry first, because that was his true calling. I realized this accident was not the cause of the Lord. He merely permitted it. John 10.10 10 says, The thief cometh not, but to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they might have life and have, that they might have it more abundantly. The one who steals and destroys is the enemy. The Lord doesn't commission it, although when man opens the door to the devil, he may permit it. And he gives the example of Job. How is Satan and not God? And Okay, so I'll fast forward. In order to get my attention and to bring about my complete submission and obedience to his perfect will, God had allowed this calamity to come into my life. Jesus said to me, It is my perfect will that men and women enjoy, enjoy divine healing and divine health. But many are like you and are living only in my permissive will. For that reason, difficulties have been permitted to come their way. Others are weak in faith. Their faith is not strong enough to appropriate the healing that belongs to them. Some don't even know what belongs to them. always pray for people who are sick and in hospitals and under doctor's care that I'll speed up the healing process because I'll do that for you. Thirteen days later, I went back to the doctor to have my cast change. When it was removed, the doctor looked at my arm in amazement and said, I've never seen an arm heal so rapidly. Normally it would have taken four weeks for my arm to heal properly. The doctor had told my wife that I would never be able to touch my shoulder with that arm. However, I can. The Lord told me as he sat there by my hospital bed that he would restore 99% of the use of that arm. He said he was going to leave that 1% disability to remind me not to disobey him again. But to use the ministry he had given me. And then he said, my arm gives me only the slightest amount of trouble. No one can ever tell anything is wrong, and most of the time I have no difficulty with it. Now, he goes on. It's really neat, because the Lord teaches him about the healing ministry, how it's not his will to that anyone be sick, and he goes on and teaches him about the prophetic ministry, which is super cool. So if you want to read it, I think he talked to him for like an hour and a half in this specific encounter I was just talking about. You see why I read this, though? And, and I want to sort of, um, now that I've read it, Go over the scripture that Jesus gave him, Romans 12. Romans 12, right? Because remember, he gave him that scripture to give him understanding of what he meant by my perfect versus my permissive will. So everyone, because we're in the new covenant, this is a promise that everyone should be able to prove what the will of God is according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. So I'm going to read from the King James, just because that's what, well... Jesus read through the, from the King James, I could have read it from another, but anyway. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some say spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good, one, acceptable to and perfect will of God, Some translations, instead of acceptable, say permissive. And remember, that's a word that Jesus used. So, in other words, in order to prove what the will of God is for your life, you have to do everything that's stated in those two verses. Number one, you need to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Number two, you you can't conform to this world, right? But number three, be transformed... By the renewing of your mind, so that's pretty clear, right? Offer our bodies a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world. Be conformed to the by the. Or sorry. Be renewed by. Uh, uh, transform rather. Thank you. By the renewing of your mind. So the the, the million dollar question for me is because I think the first two are pretty clear ish. How do you renew your mind? Because that's a critical factor in this, isn't it? How do you renew your mind? Now I've heard so many things. Read the Bible. I've, that's probably the number one I've heard too. Paul was not telling them to read the Bible. Do you know how I know? Because the Bible didn't exist. In fact, Paul was writing it right then. Right? They didn't have the New Testament. Unless he was talking about the Old Covenant, but I don't think so. Because the whole book, he's talking about we're no longer under the law. So why would he be telling them to read the law? No. There's something else that Paul's talking about. And I want to argue something. And I think I can make a case for this. That you have to read things contextually. If you read something in a letter, what did he say before in the same letter? So in order to say that, we have to rewind. We could go to Romans 7, but I'm going to go in Romans 8. Because this is the last time he mentions the mind before Romans 12. Then he goes on this bunny trail like Paul tends to do about Israel and their place in God's kingdom and all that stuff. Then he goes, okay, in light of all this, in light of everything I said up until this point... Offer your bodies as a living silence. Okay, so that's chapter 12. Now, Romans 8, and I'm just going to read a few verses. Uh, get there. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, we could talk about different things and talk other verses in Romans 8. But do you see the key there? Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and its peace. That is the key. Now, this is the new NAB. I kind of like the 84 version. It says, minds that are controlled by the spirit. This one says governed. Either way, we have to have our mind governed by the spirit, and that's the key to renewing your mind. Because he talks about this, and he goes on and on, and then in verse 12, now I'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He talks about the mind in Romans 17 and that sort of thing. But I hope that you see the key there. It's all about the Holy Spirit and being led by the Spirit and having a mind renewed by the Spirit. And to show you another scripture that says something similar, Ephesians 4 Verses 17 and 23. And I'm going to read from the NLT because I like how they say it, but, uh, your version might be slightly different. I'll start in verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17 to 23. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. Remember, we're talking about the mind now. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against them. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasures and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Remember, don't be conformed to this world. He's talking about that's what it looks like to be conformed to this world. But, verse 20, that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your formal way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Again, this is mirroring almost what he says in Romans 12, right? Instead, let the Spirit, capital S, Renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on the new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. The Spirit, let the Spirit renew your mind. Now some translations say, uh, the Spirit of your mind, yeah. That's why I like the NLT. Let the Spirit renew your mind. And, And I think, again, that mirrors what he's saying in Romans 12. That's the key to having a transformed mind, is allowing the Spirit to do it. And I think that, again, that's what he's saying contextually. Now remember, I went on this whole thing about how spiritual should be translated capital S, spirit, for a reason. Remember, Colossians 1 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives you. So where does the knowledge of His will come from? The Spirit the wisdom and understanding that Holy Spirit gives you, and that's how you know what His will is. Now, just to, to hammer that home, I'll give you some other scriptures that say more or less the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9-13. through 13. I love this portion of scripture. When I start saying it, you'll know what, what scriptures is, because it's pretty famous. However, as it's written, "...what no eye has seen when no ear is heard, and when no human mind is conceived, the things God has prepare, prepared for those who love Him. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we've received is not the Spirit of the world, Uh, but the Spirit who's from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So again, he's saying the Holy Spirit tells us and shows us and reveals what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Famous Scripture. How is it we have the mind of Christ, if you read that? What are all the Scriptures saying? Through the Spirit. Because he's the only one who knows the thoughts of God, and he reveals them to us. Through the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. We have access to God's thoughts through the Holy Spirit. That's what that's saying. Through the spirit we have the mind of Christ. Another another verse that I love. John 16:13 through 15. I got a flip there. John 16:13 through 15. Here we go. Okay. Oh my goodness, sorry, I'm in Luke. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I didn't say that. Okay. Um, there we go. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, yeah. comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears and he will tell you what's yet to come. He'll tell you future things. He'll tell you God's will for your life. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. That's the Holy Spirit's job, the Spirit of Truth. He's going to take from what's Jesus', make it known to us, reveal it to us. That's like the first Corinthians scripture I just mentioned. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why he said the Spirit will take that from what is mine and make it known to you. The Spirit of truth. How do we stay in truth? How do we stay in God's perfect will on the path of life? By the Spirit. It's only by the Spirit. John 14, 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said. All that to say, it's all by the Holy Spirit. Being led by the Holy Spirit. Having your your mind renewed by the Holy Spirit. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind by the Holy Spirit. Relationship. Remember, I was talking about The challenge or the difficulties of living just from principle rather than than presence. That's why living by the Spirit. That's God's intentions for the new covenant is that we be led by the Spirit. And that's how we know what God's will is. For not only our individualized, but His will for mankind. And His will for your loved ones. You name it. It's all by the Spirit. Ecclesiastes 3. Now, I'm saying this to make a point. Remember, I mentioned the whole thing about Jesus and the sword. Because there's different seasons. And it's only by the Spirit that we can discern what season we're in right now. It's only by the Spirit. So Ecclesiastes 3, this is a famous verse, but I'm going to read it. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So which is it? Which season are we in? The only way we'll ever know is by the Spirit of God. Now, now, this message can be challenging, and I don't want anyone to leave here feeling like, oh my goodness, am I in God's perfect will? Am I in His permissive will? Condemnation? No. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. So, what I want to say is this. Like I said, for, to stay on the path of life, you need to hold truth and tension. If you take what I said to an extreme, you're going to get off. And I know people who have, because they sit And they don't do anything because they're like, I don't know what God's will is for my life so I'm going to wait for him to speak to me and do nothing. Then they end up in sin usually. So that's the extreme side of what I'm saying. No. Live by principle. If you don't know what to do, do what you know is best and have a posture of heart. God, I believe what I'm doing is what you're calling me to do but I don't know. If I'm off, please reveal to me so I get back on track. Because really, that's the only thing we can do when we don't have a clear word from God. Is just keep moving. Like it's like the analogy of a car. You can't. It's impossible to turn a car if it's not moving. But if it's moving, you can turn it and turn it around and get it back on track, right? So you you should be moving. And and there's there's now again this is one message. There's a lot to this. So again, don't feel condemned press on, do what you know is best, and there's different, there's different ways of knowing, okay, what's God's will for my life? I love this verse, another famous one. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Not only will He plant them in you, He'll grant them. What's the desires of your heart? That's a good indication of what God's called you to do. Just simply, God, I have a passion for this, fill in the blank, whatever, go on a mission to Africa. Go to missions to Africa. But the whole time asking God, if this isn't you, just let me know. Otherwise, I'm going because I believe this is what you called me to do. And he will, guaranteed, 100% let you know if that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Or if it's the season, if maybe the season's off. Again, that's why I gave you Colossians 1, 9 through 14, that prayer. Just keep praying it. God, please fill me with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that your spirit gives. Just keep praying that, right? And as you do, God guarantees it. And that's, I believe, why that is in the Scripture, so that we do pray it, and He'll answer it. Guaranteed. Now, just so you know, I believe what I'm saying here with living from principle, you can make a case Scripture, and I'm going to, just, again, to to get you from if you're like, oh my goodness, am I missing it, am I missing it? Paul lived this way. I'll show you in the Scripture. Acts 16. So, in other words, he lived... By principle, I mean I'm not sure if it's all the time, but to the best of his knowledge, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and he allowed the Holy Spirit to correct him if he's off. So Acts sixteen verse nine. Or no wait, we'll just say Acts sixteen, verse six. Paul and his companions traveled now remember, I'll say this first, I got I should set this up. Paul was commissioned to be apostle to the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, we most of us probably know this, said uh Okay, so you know we all know this, right? He's called to the Gentiles. So what do you do if you're an apostle called to the Gentiles? I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Maybe Paul didn't have a clear word of the specific city he's supposed to go to. Maybe he did. But here's, let me show you the scripture where it shows he just kind of went. This is the best to my knowledge what I'm supposed to do. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, wait, don't do that right now. Go here. Okay. So Acts 16, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of, sorry, throughout the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia and having been kept Listen, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word to the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. So look at the... So they're, okay, let's go here. Let's go to Toronto. Holy Spirit, like, no. Not, not right now. Go, go to Peterborough. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. This is what I thought, but we're wrong. Okay, Holy Spirit, thank you. So, Verse 8, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, again, the posture of heart, God speak to me, where do you want me? During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia to help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got up, him and Luke and others, and went to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you can see that Paul had this calling, and he's like, hey, I don't have a clear word, so I'm going to do this. And then he just allowed the Holy Spirit. No, don't go there yet. Go here. And that's how we should all be living. What are the desires of your heart? I think as Bill Johnson used to say this, some people would I don't know what God's will is. Please pray for me what God's will is for my life. And Bill would say something like, okay, well, what are you doing right now? I'm a barista at Starbucks. Okay. Be a barista at Starbucks. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, preach the gospel everywhere you go. Wait a minute, though. Wait a minute, I don't think I'm called to Starbucks. Okay, what do, you call, what do you think you're called to? Well, I want to go to school to be a doctor. Okay, go to school, become a doctor, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, preach the gospel everywhere you go. <laughs> so, so you see, there, there's a balance here now. I'm not saying, I believe that you can make a stronger case where we should be led by the Spirit, and that's why we should be continually praying for God's will, but with that being said... Don't go on the side of the dish that I said. Don't do nothing because you're waiting for a word of the Lord. Do something at least, according to the principles that are clear in Scripture, the Great Commission, all that. Do what you think is best and just continually pray, God, what's your will? Please let me know. That's the best we can do. Does that make sense? Awesome. So why don't we pray? Lord, I just thank you so much for these amazing people. I ask that you bless every single one of us. With the knowledge of your will, with also the peace that surpasses understanding, that guard our minds and hearts in Christ, as we walk our faith out the best that we know how, we just ask for wisdom from your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and lead us in every way we should go. We thank you for your precious promises that say that you're going to guide us, that you're going to direct us, that we as we not we don't lean on our understanding, but in all our ways we acknowledge you, you're going to guide our paths. We promise that, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. So God, we just thank, thank you for all you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I just ask that even through dreams and visions in whatever way, even if it's just a still, small voice, that you speak to each and every one of us and continually guide us into your perfect will. And Lord, if you've been speaking to us even during this message, Lord, that you just help us obey whatever it is you're telling us to do to get back on track. So Father, I just thank you and I ask that you bless everyone this week and as they leave with your joy and peace and love and that you just cleanse us from any sense of condemnation and we just thank you that your spirit of life just gives us life and freedom from bondage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.